This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope you're doing well today. And uh, I think, you know, we're thinking about the people down on the coast again uh, uh, as the weather they're facing is uh, kind of rough again. And we're thinking about them and I hope they're doing well. Um, but we're always excited to have Andre Degree, uh, the Chief Public Defender for the State of Mississippi, on the show. He's been a frequent guest and a, and a great guest. And Andre, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you became interested in being a public defender? Sure. Um, good to be back with y'all. Um, good to we're, we're watching each other on Zoom. I just let everybody know it's good to see you too. I, I, you know, I'm on the radio and I say good to see you. It's kind of weird, but. Um, I have, um, so I'm the state public defender. I've been in this role now for a little over five years. Um, I was just recently reappointed by Governor Reeves, uh, originally appointed by Governor Bryant. Uh, Before that, I served as the capital defender, running the death penalty trial and appeal office. Um, I have I have just recently uh, actually relinquished the the job of capital defender. Uh, it, we, we went through a merger to form the state defender back in 2011. I stayed on as capital defender. I had started capital defense uh, as a freestanding office about a decade before, and uh, at, when I became state defender, I stopped handling uh, cases, uh, well, I I stopped serving as lead counsel on cases, but I I just couldn't give up running the office. And I finally realized I've got other things that I have to focus on, a state defender. um, And so Kelsey Rushing, who's been running, who's been with us for about 10 years as our, our senior capital uh, litigator, and, and he is now officially the capital defender. And then uh, before I went to state government, I worked, I was a public defender in Hines County working under Tom Fortner, and also worked for about five years right out of law school uh, and beginning in law school with uh, the Capital Defense Resource Center, which was a federally funded, primarily federally funded nonprofit at uh, Mississippi College School of Law. Uh, so that, that's basically my career, and, and you asked sort of what, how, do, how did I end up throwing my life away as a public defender, or at least my career away. Um, you know, and it, it just started, I, I probably didn't know I was going to be a public defender until I got involved in the first death penalty case with, at, uh, as an extern in the law school. But I, I knew when I went to law school and I knew from 
an early age that I, I was going to do, but long before I even thought about being a lawyer, that I needed I needed to serve the poor, and that came really from my parents. Um, we had a traditional Catholic family, and I was at CCD classes, uh, usually early because my mom was teaching them, and it was just expected and understood that we have to serve the poor. And, uh, you know, it's great coming on today. I was reminded of this uh, Sunday, we, the second reading from from James, faith without works is dead. And, uh, you know, we can't just, as Jesus tells us, visit the imprisoned. We have to work for them. And that's what I grew up with. And and when I had these opportunities come up in law school that, that just sort of, uh, you know, big believer in divine providence, I think I was, these, these weren't just opportunities that came up that I jumped at. It was the path I was set on. And, and so that's, uh, I'm now nearing the end of my career, uh, I think. Uh, you know, it's always every four years subject to whether or not my career ends because I've done something to some irritate some governor and I've now I've now gotten appointed and reappointed by four successor governors who who are all quite different so I think uh you know that that's good to look back and say I I survived a lot of things well, we appreciate it. and obviously this is a calling and we appreciate the good work you do and and uh and let's talk a little bit about um, Mississippi in, in terms of crime, and let's get some statistics that will help us put this in context. Uh, where does Mississippi rank uh, in terms of violent crime nationally? Well, I, I think this would surprise a lot of people, and you know, these are um, year-old data that I, that I'm going to share because uh, month of September is when the FBI releases their their annual crime in the U.S. report, and that hadn't come out yet. So this report came out last year. We were, and it's pretty consistent. There haven't been really huge changes when you look at overall crime or um, or violent crime specifically. But Mississippi, in, in the last data set, is 15th lowest. So from the, the least amount of violent crime, we're number 15. So um, that's, uh, I think, a surprise to a lot of people. Now, what about the murder rate? Because uh, you know, that kind of goes along with violent crime. Well, you know, that's the, the, you know, that's what people hear about, and I think that's why people think if I tell them we're 15th lowest in violent crime, they, they want to start telling me about what they saw in the news last night. So our homicide rate is high, and it's, it, it is, you know, looking across all violent crime, and we're so low, the reason, you know, homicides, they're, they're thankfully not that many when you compare them to all crime. Um, you know, maybe 300 or so in Mississippi out of about five or 6,000 violent crimes. So there's number-wise that it doesn't change the overall 
statistics on violent crime, but we are, we, you know, we're we're one of the top. We're uh, usually number two, right behind Louisiana. Um, but in in on violent crime, we're we're double the national average. So it's it's a huge, significant problem. And and I would say, you know, I think everyone knows this. I'm a Jackson resident. I love my city. I've been here since 1987. But the reason we're number two in the country in homicides is because the city of Jackson is one of the highest. And about last the last data set, we Jackson made up, of course, this is our second year of setting records in Jackson. We were... Um, Half of all murders in Mississippi occur in the city of Jackson, roughly, pretty close. So. And what, what about, uh, you know, just to finish up the statistical questions, I mean, what about um, nonviolent crime in Mississippi? You know, how, where do we rank in that respect? Well, we're, we're about in the middle of states in the, in the distribution. We're a little bit higher than half, uh, than half of the average. So we're above average and nonviolent crimes. But when you look uh, the median, where the states fall, we're, we're in the middle. And, and one of the things we like to do, we look at the surrounding states, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Alabama. And when you look at, at uh, violent crime, obviously we're the lowest. Nonviolent crime, we're the lowest of those five states. Um, so that's, uh, you know, we're, I don't know where we rank um, in the 50 states, but I know we're the lowest in nonviolent crime in the surrounding states. We're talking today with state defender Andre Degree. We're learning about the crime rate in Mississippi, the, the murder rate, the homicide rate. We're also going to get into a juvenile uh, parole, lots of great issues you're welcome to send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Often we're not able to get to our emails on the show, but our guests are usually lovely and can respond to those later. We do have a call. We're going to go to Sue in Beaumont. Sue, thanks for calling into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Yes, thank you. I heard on NPR this past weekend that that uh, the United States has the most incarcerations of any country on earth. <laughs> we have the most incarcerations, and Mississippi has the most incarcerations of of any state in, in the United States. I, I had no idea that was so. That that's that's what the uh, the topic was on NPR. Uh, is that what is that what you're saying now that we have more incarcerations than anyone? Andre. Yeah. Um, so. Right. Well, we're talking about crime numbers where we're where we're relatively low, but I think you're you're pretty close. I don't, uh, you know, it, it almost changes daily to say whether or not we're number one or number three. Um, as far as I know, we have not surpassed Louisiana in uh, incarceration, but you know, we've been in a in a movement to decarcerate here in Mississippi since about 2014. Uh, but other states are also we, – we were number two then, and other states are also moving to to uh, lower the number of people in prison. So, um, you know, we dropped from number two to about number five, and then quickly we're back to number three. 
and and it Oklahoma and, and Mississippi bounce between two and three. It depends on who which legislature is in session almost. Um, so so we are that is accurate information. We are among you know the U.S. is number one in the world, and and we are generally in the top three. That's terrible, isn't it? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, you know, Sue, thank you for calling you. I know you're a frequent caller, and you actually read, you must have read our script because that was the next question I was going to ask, Andre, was about our incarceration rate, so we appreciate you listening. You can always send us an email with your questions, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing the public defender system in Mississippi with our guest, Andre DeGray. And the work his office does is important and varied. And where can you hear more about their work? I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is in legal terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of the program, you can go back and listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are many of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. This morning we're talking about the public defender system reforms with the state defender, Andre DeGray. And if you're interested in hearing more about Andre's past work, he is no longer the uh, capital defender, but he has was in the past when we had him on our October 15th, 2019 show. He also was on our February 9th, 2021, when we talked about bail. And back in April 3rd of 2018, we also discussed public defenders. Well, it's an important topic, and uh, and we're always really, really happy to have the chief public defender of the state here, Andre Degree. Um, the, you know, does Mississippi have a statewide and, and state-funded public defender? We we don't, and uh, you know, a lot of times people outside of Mississippi or outside of the office hear that I'm the state defender, and they think that's a really big deal. But uh, I've got 20 folks working for me; only half of them are lawyers. 
Um, we do, you know, the vast majority of public defense in Mississippi is done by uh, really part-time contractors around the state, um, lawyers in private practice, usually uh, solo practitioners or small firms. And, and then we have a few county-funded uh, full-time public defender offices. Um, I say a few. We have six or eight out of 82 counties, so very few. Um, and the vast majority of the spending, uh, the expenditures, are on the, they fall on the back of the local counties. So the state's not providing any, any type of support for the vast majority. Is that usual? I mean, do other states have statewide public defender's offices? Um, they they do. Um, you know what we found in a we had a public defender task force a few years ago that that one of their tasks was to look around the country and see, um, and they focused on on the southeast and so a, a fair comparison to what to Mississippi. And we were the only state that didn't have either a statewide entity running indigent defense or uh, primarily state funding. Um, so we're unique in putting the burden on the counties. We've got a question from Jackson. Mary Jane has called. Mary Jane, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Hi, I actually have two questions in listening to the fact that we have such high incarceration rate. I'm wondering, first of all, what is the major or primary reason or offense to, that leads to incarceration here? And the other one is, um, you know, do we have, is there any plan for finding a way to not have so much incarceration and other programs that could kick in that um, that could take up the rest of our time but I will uh, <laughs> that the first part of your question what complex obviously but when when you look at our surrounding states and their their crime rate you really do have to start scratching your head and say why in the world would we be incarcerating so so many more people and it's not because we have have more crime. Um, I, I believe, and and this is what I'm taking to the legislature. I believe that the not having a state level support for indigent defense and having a better having standards, uh, which mo our surrounding states have them, because the states providing most of the funding, or in the case of Louisiana, half the funding, and with that they can impose standards on across the state. And without having that, the inconsistency, um, where you have some really good lawyers out there making sacrifices, you also just, you don't have uh, lawyers getting appointed in a timely manner. We think that's probably one of the real drivers because there's research that shows if someone stays in jail before trial, they're more likely to be convicted and when convicted, 
be given a longer sentence. And those are the things that contribute to the incarceration problem. So, so we think, um, and we have some pilot projects that we'll talk about later, that we think getting lawyers involved earlier um, will help reduce the overall incarceration rate. And, and we have, I, I alluded to the reforms earlier, we, the legislature has been instituting reforms. Um, a lot of it is centered around parole eligibility, uh, giving parole eligibility to people who previously had lost it, uh, mostly in 1995. Um, the, uh, so just as recently as the last legislative session, we really expanded the number of people who would be parole eligible. So, so that should contribute to lowering uh, those incarceration numbers. Andre, back to her first question that Mary Jane asked, what are uh, it drug offenses, uh, speeding tickets, burglary? What is there? Is there a main overall uh, number offense that folks get, or do we are we equal opportunity incarcerators? Well, the um, thankfully it's very seldom that we're incarcerating someone for uh, a speeding ticket, uh, although. Some people do get incarcerated for speeding. Um, it, you know, it's it's all of the above. Um, we one of the problems uh, we saw back in 2013, uh, and, and this is from the task force that was put together that I've had the privilege of serving on for for um, the last eight years. The uh, we really had a problem with. Um, Nonviolent offenders being in our, and that was where we started in 14, was reducing the number of nonviolent offenders going to prison. Um, and so that uh, we flipped from 55% of the prison population, over 20,000 people being in for nonviolent offenses, to now. Uh, 55% being in for violent offenses and down to about 17,400 as in the number. So uh, almost all of the people who have gotten out by the reforms uh, of prior to this session uh, were nonviolent offenders, including drug offenders. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done there, particularly um, with the people are still going to prison, about 2,000 a year for simple possession of drugs. And, and, you know, we need a lot more programs available for people in the community so that we're not sending people to prison for, for simple possession of drugs. Thank you, Mary Jane. We appreciate that question. Andre, if you've been on a task force for eight years, I thought those were supposed to be temporary. We need <laughs> well, well, let me t tell you a little bit about that. They, that, uh, you know, I, I was one of the ones that, that perpetuated the joke that if, if you don't have the votes to pass good legislation, you create a task force. Um, but this, is, this really changed my view on them. The, the 2013 task force, the Corrections and Criminal Justice Task Force, actually only worked for one year, and we made proposals, and the legislature passed almost as presented to them our 21-point proposal. But one of those recommendations was to create 
a, an ongoing task force to monitor the reforms we were instituting and to make good recommendations going forward to continue uh, what what policy direction the 2014 legislature set. So, so it really shouldn't be called a task force. It's, it's the Corrections and Criminal Justice Oversight Task Force, but it's really not a task force. It, it's a standing committee to monitor the reforms that are being made. We're very excited to have our guest, Andre Degree, from the Public Defender uh, System Reforms is our topic. Email us your questions. The address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Where could you go to get free legal assistance? Get your pen and paper ready. I'm going to tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you subscribe to our podcast. That way you can take us with you you, if you're at the airport, in the car, or doing the dishes. You can listen to our shows. You can just download it to your smart device. Then you go search for the podcast name. Ours is In Legal Terms. It brings us up. You can touch our photo and then subscribe. You're notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about the public defender system with our guest, Andre DeGray, from the Office of State Defender. I hope you got that pen and paper ready if you needed it. If you need legal assistance but have limited financial resources, there are a number of places you can try. You're not guaranteed that you can get help, but you should contact them. One website is msbar.org has a list, but then here are a few. The statewide, the Mississippi Volunteer Lawyers Project, and they also often offer clinics, their number is 601-960-5977. That Mississippi Voluntary Lawyers Project is 601-960-9577. If you're in 39 North Counties, the North Mississippi Rural Legal Services is 1-800-498-1804. And if you're in 43 South Counties, the Mississippi Center for Legal Services, 
has the same phone number, 1-800-498-1804. And if you're in the Jackson Metro area, Mission First Legal Aid Office, their phone number is 601-608-0056. That Mission First Legal Aid Office in the Jackson area is 601-608-0056. We've got a phone call to go to. We're going to go to Dal, who has called in this morning. Thanks for calling in, Dal. What's your comment or question for Andre DeGray and our Office of the State Defender? Good morning, Andre. Uh Thank you for taking my call. My, my question is, uh, back when I was a prosecutor in Rankin and Madison County, about the time Judge John Infinger got elected, I was told that public defenders on average uh, made about $500 for, you know, along with an expectation of constitutionally defending people uh, charged with felonies. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you might uh, have a little bit more of a discussion about what due process means and how people who are accused of felony crimes in Mississippi can get that due process when they come through the door labeled with uh, stereotypes, bias, poverty. Uh, I'm talking about the people that conservatives might say look like criminals. And if they didn't commit the crime, they probably did something wrong and deserve to go to the penitentiary. I, I wonder if you might elaborate on that. And I'm asking that not only as a former prosecutor, but someone who is a solo criminal defense lawyer who, by and large, uh, doesn't get paid for the working services I perform the general public. Sure, Dow. Good talking to you. Hadn't, hadn't seen you in a while. Um, the, um, so the, the problem, and this is um, you know, when you look at these part-time systems, um, which, which some of them are, are, you know, you've got enough lawyers and, and a reasonable pay that you know they're, they're not supposed to get rich off of of the public defender contract, but in the vast majority, you know, it, it's kind of thing that that Dow's talking about. You know, they they're averaging five hundred dollars a month, and and you just can't, you know, in private practice, you know, we're talking about two or three hours a time to represent an unlimited number of people, and so you, you just. The lawyers are forced into making making some uh, you know, rationing, I guess, of of justice, and that's you know under our constitution, under you know that that can't be considered due process, and that's uh, you know the studies have borne this out is that you're just putting too much burden on the the lawyer who's trying to keep his his lights on at his office and but also wants to provide a service this isn't getting appointed on one case and being underpaid this is these are lawyers that are that are handling a high volume of cases and and so what what we're starting to to talk about and you mentioned conservatives um, the American Legislative Exchange Council is, is about as conservative as you get, and they've come out, they passed a resolution, and actually our speaker, uh, speaker of our house, was president of, of that organization when they made, when they passed the resolution supporting indigent defense, 
And, it, and one of the things they talked about was both, they talked about caseload control, but they talked about pay parity, that others, other government lawyers should be, the, the public defender should be making about the same as other government lawyers doing the same thing. So, so pay parity between the defense and the prosecution. Um, and that's sort of that. That's where we're going with our reforms. Is that's one of the foundational issues, and one of the things that have to be addressed is is this pay parity issue. And just a quick follow up. In your experience, uh, Andre, would would it be fair to say that public defenders, as they exist now in our criminal justice system, have an institutional expectation coming from the judge? Uh, as well as prosecutors to tell most of their clients, you know, I can't really defend your case fully for 500 bucks. Isn't there, isn't there like an expectation for poor people to plead guilty simply because they are, they are poor? I mean, is that the general expectation? Because we all know you can't try every case. I think we get, and uh, in, in whether or not it's explicit or not, there's certainly the the implicit pressure to uh, to meet them and plead them, um, and and just so often the the client's been sitting in jail. Sometimes we've seen a, a year or more, but usually six months in jail. They, they get indicted and they meet the lawyer for the first time and the lawyer says, we can go to trial, but we're not going to go to trial for another year. And you can, you're going to sit here for another year because judge isn't going to reduce your bond. Or you can take this deal and, and get off to MDOC and start earning time off of this sentence because when you're sitting in the jail waiting, you're not, you're not getting any earned time. So, so there is, and, and you know, that's been documented in some of the studies is that, you know, that happens and, you know, it shouldn't happen. And, and you know, you and I know better than, than most, but, you know, for, just from an attorney's perspective, that's putting a burden on that lawyer, too, to, to you know, it creates a conflict in, in their uh, representation. Yeah. My experience is you can get just about as much constitutional justice in Mississippi as you can pay for. And I appreciate you taking my call, and thank you for your service. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, we appreciate your call. And actually, you know, that raises a really, we were talking about the statewide system. And are there, you know, there, there are constitutional provisions that say that guarantee right to counsel, that guarantee due process, uh, and can we achieve that with our current system, um, and, and what proposals can change that so we can be in compliance with the 14th and 6th Amendments? Well, I, I think that um, you know, one of the things that's, that's so important is to, be a, to have some objective standards so that people who have lawyers assigned to them know what that lawyer is supposed to be doing. Um, and, and then, and you can have evaluations of the lawyers ongoing. Um, you, you don't. The the way you vindicate your right is by going to trial and losing, 
losing on a direct appeal and then being able to file a post-conviction motion later to raise ineffective assistance of counsel, and, and you don't get a lawyer, unless you're sentenced to death, you don't get a lawyer to raise that. And so being able, you know, whatever perspective you want to look at this from, a, a taxpayer, they're spending, you know, we're, we're talking about underpaid, but counties are spending 15 to $20 million and no way to know whether or not they're getting 15 to $20 million worth of service. Um, you know, obviously, the, from the accused perspective, they, they need to know that they're getting good service. But the only way the court, courts ever review this is for the case to get on to post-conviction where the person has to, from prison, file their petition. Now, as Clarence Gideon will show you, you, you can file a petition from prison and win, but, but that's, um, it's really tough when, when you look at the death penalty cases and the number we've had about a dozen or so where they get lawyers in post-conviction, and we've got about a dozen or so that have been reversed for ineffective assistance. So it, it's, a, it's a problem throughout the system, and it's a problem that really um, is, the system is created to make it very difficult to review. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Remember, we're talking about our laws and our rights and who makes the decisions about corrections laws in Mississippi. I'm going to tell you next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, so relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. We're talking with Andre DeGray from the Office of State Defender 
Now, who are on the Corrections Committee of your Mississippi legislature? In the House, we've got Kevin Horan, Carl Mickens, are the chairman and vice chamber, uh, Jeremy Anderson, Otis Anthony, Nick Bain, Joel Bogmar, Angela Cockrum, John Faulkner, Kevin Felsher, Jill Ford, Dale Goodwin, Rob Robertson, Tracy Rosebud, Randy Rushing, Fred Shanks, Shonda Yates, and Charles Young Jr. Now on the Senate, the Corrections Committee's chairperson and vice chairperson are Juan Barnett, Daniel Sparks, and their members are Joel Carter Jr., Linda Graves Chassanol, Dennis DeBar Jr., Samson Jackson III, Solly Norwood, Derek Simmons, Sarita Simmons, Melanie Sojourner, and Bryce Wiggins. So I hope you know who represents you, and we hope you will be an informed voter. We do have one call. It's William who has called in. William, I think that's from Starkville. William, thanks for calling into in legal terms today. What is your comment or question? Uh, I, I wanted to comment that uh, I wondered what the what the rates, of the, the crime rates were when he says that we're 15th from the bottom, one of the lowest uh, major crime rates, but we're one of the sw smallest states. That could mean that we had the highest crime rate per 100,000 people, which is a rate. And all he quite quoted was uh, was totals. No, William. I was said those were rates, not the total. It's it's per one hundred thousand. Um, it is well, not. Uh, it's no, not. No, a, no. You said we were fifteenth from the bottom in total total crime, and 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 that was crime rate. So that, that yeah, uh, crime okay. rate. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to uh, to to identify that because I thought that doesn't mean anything to me. Anyway, you've got my comment, and I'm sorry to be critical. I love uh, your programs, and so carry on and with your good work. Good luck. Uh, th thank you, William, because if I misspoke earlier, that, that's a good opportunity to clarify. It really doesn't, you know, and we get too, too much in all of our news of, of not putting things in context. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about rate uh, per 100,000, crimes per 100,000 people. Thank you, William. We appreciate you calling in. We do appreciate you, William, and, and uh, let's thanks, so thank you for that call. We, we want to talk about some other reform proposals that uh, your office has uh, in, in front of the legislature. One of them has to do with the juvenile habitual defenders, and could you talk a little bit about that, because that's important. Sure. So, um, I, you know, I've talked about being on this uh, Corrections and Criminal Justice Oversight Task Force. So in the last legislative session, uh, the Mississippi legislature passed some, the Earned Parole Eligibility Act and uh, really expanding parole to about doubling the, the percentage of people in the prison who are going to be parole eligible. But also in that act, they, they directed the oversight task force to look at at some issues that I guess they, they really need more study on. And one involves, actually two issues, one involves the juvenile uh, parole issue and the other is habitual sentencing. We've got a lot of folks, and, and the numbers are going up, that have these, uh, you know, what a lot of people know of as, as three strikes laws. And, um, and so uh, and from the 
as a member of the task force, all members of the task force can make recommendations for things to go into the report um, and the recommendation, you know, obviously asking that those recommendations go on to the legislature. So a couple of the issues, be because the legislature directed us to look at those issues of juvenile parole and habitual parole, um, we are we are studying that, and we've made recommendations on in the habitual area to to look at things. Um, the we about 60% of these three strike send uh, the the so-called the nonviolent, but they're not. It means the person's never been convicted of a violent offense. And then the other, the the big habitual um, is. The 83 habitual is violent prior. You have a one violent prior, and uh, you can be sentenced to life without parole. And um, in those cases, we have about, last date I looked at, 85 people out of about 380 who were serving life without parole sentences for nonviolent crimes. And, and that's something that the legislature, the House has actually passed. Uh, reforms on that and, and limiting the uh, 83 habitual, life without parole habitual, to violent offenders. And, and so we're, we're supporting that. That's not actually part of the task force recommendation, but we're supporting that reform. Uh, we actually have a couple of clients in our office who have, who have come through sentenced to life without parole, one for uh, both of them for possession of marijuana. So it's, um, you know, we're, we're talking about whether or not ma marijuana should be uh, medically available, and in a lot of places it's now even uh, been decriminalized, and we've got two people serving life without parole on that charge. So we're, we're talking about that, but, but because it just involves a lot more people, about 2,500, I believe, serving the 81 habitual sentence, which is a mandatory sentence. You, you serve 100% of the time. And the legislature has seen this as a problem, and they've, they've at least with the nonviolent habitual offenders. So that, that means the person's current offense is nonviolent. They don't have convictions for violent crimes in their past. About 60% of the 2,500 are serving day for day. No earned time, no early release under any condition, no parole. They serve 100% of their sentence. Um, and, you know, the legislature tried, made some exceptions that judges could look at the case down the road and recommend parole. Very few, that's been on the books for seven years. Very few people have benefited from that. Um, they tried again to allow judges to decrease to not sentence to the to the maximum on the crime, um, and we haven't seen in the data. There's no evidence. In fact, there was about a four percent increase in the length of sentence given to these nonviolent habituals. So we're we're recommending either that all habitual be limited to violent offenses, uh, consistent with what we've been doing since 2014 or have, uh, you know, look at some way to get them out early under supervision, whether expanding earned 
earned time eligibility or making them parole eligible. So today, nonviolent offenders are eligible at 25%. We're suggesting let's look at 33% if the person's got two priors. So those, those discussions are ongoing with the task force. I, I will, um, you know, I'm still trying to get convince them to make that recommendation, so I shouldn't say this, but I, I have a feeling we're going to be still studying this rather complicated issue um, into, you know, beyond the 2022 session. I think we're looking more at 2023 to make a real proposal. The other issue, um, the juvenile parole issue, uh, goes back to a 2012 Supreme Court decision. Um, that said you can't automatically give life without parole to a juvenile, so someone who was under the age of 18 at the time the, the offense was committed. You can't sentence them at all for uh, a non-homicide. You can't use the, the, the life without parole sentence. You can, and we have about two dozen people serving life without parole, um, but it, you know, we're, we're pushing to get Mississippi in with the majority of states that abolish life without parole. There's still going to be significant amount of time that they will have to serve before they become parole eligible. Andre, we once again, we need a couple more hours and we'll be bringing you back to get to the 15 questions we didn't get a chance to ask you. Thank you, Andre Degree, for being on our show today. We appreciate you. This is wrapping us up for In Legal Terms today. Thanks to Java Chapman and Jay White for putting our show on and for Professor Richard Gershon, who has to rush off to his next class, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.